Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. With me tonight is freelance writer Richard Cobbett. Richard, welcome to the show. Hi, good to be here. Good to finally get you on here. And also joining us uh, to talk about his recently released RTS uh, Akron is Dr. Chris Hazard. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, Chris, I guess I just want to want to start with you. I'd like you to tell us a bit about the background uh, on Akron. When did you when did you first get this idea, and when did it become feasible? Yeah, back in 1999, I was an undergrad talking with one of my close friends about the RTS Homeworld, which was one of the first RTSs to really take advantage of the third dimension in, it, in its full space. And he, he jokingly said to me, what if you had a 40 RTS? And that idea just stuck with me. And I thought, well, you could do all these other sorts of things. And I thought it would kind of be a, a very, very niche thing about having things move through four dimensional space. But then I thought, well, what if you had a time, de- time travel RTS? And that idea really stuck on. I spent about a couple of weeks estimating what it would take to run that sort of thing. And I figured back in 99 that it would be about 2006 or 2007 before computers would be fast enough to run it. So I began it as a what I call a professional hobby. Um, I was in the, you know, the software industry for a while and uh, working through my PhD, working on this all the time in the background. It was probably around 2008 that computers really became fast enough that we started um, setting our sights on releasing an actual game for it. Uh, along that time, it was always uh, you know keeping up with the latest things, saying what can we incorporate and what can't we, because there's a lot of um, considerations with respect to RAM and CPU usage and all the performance things that uh, a lot of other games get to take for, uh, get to take for advantage or get to take for granted. When you when you finally started working on it, um, you know one one of the things that that seemed to come up a lot uh, in criticisms of the game is that. You know, it was. I mean, pathfinding was very was very clunky. Uh, the AI couldn't play the game as completely as a human. Uh, when you started working on this, um, what sort of what sort of challenges does basically when you when you are creating a time travel RTS, um, how does the scale of the challenge uh, increase? Okay, to put it uh, to put things into perspective, for pathfinding, we have about one twentieth of the CPU avail- available and about one one millionth of the RAM available compared to every other RTS in the market. So we had to come up with a lot of our own algorithms for pretty much everything. Um, you know, I look at um, I, I talk to other well-known game developers, people working on physics engines, people who are doing the cutting-edge stuff now, and talk to them about what they're doing and. It, Nothing at all related to what we could do and what we could accomplish in, in the uh, same amount of, of CPU throughput. Um, so I remember back the first, I'd say, first year of development, first nine months or so, I didn't think we would be able to have carrier units in the game because of performance reasons. And it's, if, you, if anybody's taken a, one semester of a freshman-level college course in computer programming, you can, you can have containers that are really easy. It's, it's basically a couple lines of code. Let's throw something in there. Well, it turns out because of the memory considerations, because of different thing, cache in the CPU, we didn't think that that was even possible to begin with. So we had to. So that's actually how teleportation came into the game. Was working around that. Later on, about I was in the shower one day and figured out a, a really clever way to have carrier units and pull that off. So that that got added. But we kept the teleportation mechanism in because we thought it was a lot of fun. Um, there was throughout. All of these years of development, there are quite literally several hundred major engineering challenges like that that we've faced of how do we get this into the game. Um, in some respects, we have less memory per unit or, or roundabouts the same amount of memory that Dune 2 did back in, what was that, like 92 when it was released? Mm-hmm. That's how much, so we had to, to cram as much modern gameplay into that, those data structures as we possibly could. 
Um, so challenges were, were just abound. Um, the pathfinding was, there was one major setback with that that I wish I could go back in time and change. Um, there was, uh, we designed most of the single player around the fact that we knew we had a bit more performance that we could squeeze out of pathfinding because we hadn't totally optimized the algorithms yet. And uh, I, I started working on that oh, about maybe nine months or a year ago. I really started hammering away at, at pathfinding performance. And I, I'd put in an entire day of effort and at best I'd see 1% return like 1% improvement. And I kept on hammering and hammering away, away at it, putting all this time in. And finally I was like, okay, this is, everything looks about right. I, I can't think of what else we can do. We've thrown in everything in the kitchen sink for this. And one week after release, I was looking through something, debugging something slightly unrelated. Uh, you know, a little issue that somebody had found. And it turns out that there was a bug, a really subtle bug all along in the pathfinding that had really kept us from achieving better pathfinding. So I fixed that bug and wham, instantly we could double our pathfinding strength and the, all of the performance considerations changed. So over the course of the last month, we've released two patches which have roughly quadrupled the pathfinding strength. It's still not, um, we still don't have the resources available of, of uh, other games, but it's much, much better. The, uh, to address the comment on AI, um, that's another thing that is a very difficult research challenge. How do you have an AI that plays across the timeline? We actually had a, a, a guy who was working on his PhD in, in uh, planning algorithms work on the AI for a little while, uh, made some progress there, but it's still kind of an open research question as to, as to how you pull that off and how you pull it off effectively to feel like a human. Um, that's something that uh, some, some folks in our community are working on um, as, as a project as well, and something we're going to continue to work on in the future too. Richard, I, I know that uh, you also you encountered a lot of a lot of these same problems. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, and there was there was a lot of there's a lot of pushback, at least that I saw in comments, uh, that the the scale the scale of these the scale of these problems uh, w was such that because nobody ever done anything like this before, uh, you know, didn't didn't the game deserve a bit of a pass? And one of the things I saw happening over and over in the reviews of Akron uh, is that. A Akron sort of, you know, is this avant-garde indie project through and through, uh, but it sort of ran headlong into the expectations that go with this genre uh, that have sort of been hammered into us by, you know, an absolute ton of games. Hmm. Uh, you know, did, did you think it was, you know, did, did you, th do you do you think that Akron deserves uh, some special consideration, not necessarily from reviewers, but uh, gamers who are maybe put off by the low scores it's getting? I think it's a difficult one. Cause, I mean, um, I mean, probably the hardest type of review to do is when you really admire the game, but you just don't feel it's quite working. I think the trouble with Akron is that it's biting off, at least on the, on the face of it, it's biting off more than it can chew, which is that you've got the time travel stuff, which is brilliant. I mean, literally playing with it is awesomely fun. Everyone should at least try that. But it's, tr it's almost getting into um, a blow-for-blow blow match with StarCraft, which is a hell of a thing to take on even when you're just, you're just playing it straight, never mind when you're kind of down to these yeah, fractions of a percent for AI and so on. Um, and I think part of the trouble is that it feels a lot like a research project first rather than a game, uh, not in the sense that it doesn't have story and balance and so on, but it, everything, everything which kind of you experience while playing, it is, this is really, really clever, and it's been done almost for the sake of being clever rather than necessarily because it's good for the game or kind of because it's going to be the most fun um, or similar things like that. And I think certainly in review, you can't not mention that, but you, but I think it is worth mentioning um, 
just, like I said, how good the central gimmick is and how much I really want to see it picked up and kind of done again, maybe in a slightly different template. Yeah, I mean, when I, when I was reviewing the game for a PC gamer, I, you know, we we both reviewed it, reviewed it uh, you for Rock, Paper, Shotgun, and mm. me for PC Gamer. Um, I, I was working to a very tight print deadline on that one, and I, you know, I, I gave it, I gave it a higher score. I agreed with everything you wrote, Richard. Um, mm. You know, pretty much, I think we we ended up in in roughly the same place, but we 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 weighed the experiences uh, very differently. For me, where I got really hung up is that. There were there were a lot of things about Akron that that pushed me away, but at the same time, I had a, I had a real hard time. You know, when I stepped away from the game, I had a hard time remembering a lot of those because I was starting to get hung up on memories of playing it in multiplayer mm. and everything that was possible. And I ended up, you know, I, I I touch on a lot of these things in the in the text of my review. The fact that uh you know the, the the unit design is not clear and distinct. That's a recurring problem: is uh, learning what these units are exactly, how they function, uh, and you know, and things like pathfinding, command and control. But at the same time, the the central gimmick was was so intoxicating uh, that that I ended up, you know, that's what I ended up focusing on more when I sort of considered the experience in retrospect. Well, I mean, when I was writing up the review, I think I focused quite heavily on that side, because I always like to lead on a positive when it's got something that cool. I think one of the downsides of um, Akron's design is that you, by, by default, you're probably going to go into the single-player mode, and that gives a really bad view of the game. Uh, you've got the first opening mi- opening missions, which are just boring, and then you go from that into a skirmish mode that can't play its own game, and then you go to multiplayer, and you're probably going to get your ass kicked kind of immediately. And I think that... Um, when you do finally sort of get into a multiplayer game, especially with a friend who doesn't know the ropes um, either, and so you're kind of teaching each other and kind of doing the whole, can I do this and can I do that? And, oh my God, you can. Then it suddenly becomes much, much cooler. But not for me, not to, not to the extent that I could ever forget the fact that I couldn't identify my units at a glance, that um, I quickly got bogged down in units just not going where they were meant to be going. And with a lot of the back and forth just being too complicated for its own good. But like I said, with with... with that comes the fact that I do really admire the time travel technology itself, and playing with that was one of the best um, RPS uh, RTS sorry uh, RTS experiences I've had this year. Now, now, Chris, you did a lot of testing on this game uh, before release. Did did you see these reviews coming? Well, yes and no. We expected um, we expected a wide range of reviews. We knew that. Um, you know, our our entire budget for the game, aside from all of the the blood, sweat, and tears that my business partner and I put in, was probably smaller than the catering budget for StarCraft II. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that definitely reflects on the art. For example, um, there was. Uh, we knew the unit distinction stuff was coming. We, you know, we did everything that we could for that. And there was a couple cases like we, we hired a couple student artists because that was what our budget could afford. And uh, you know, they one of the guys said, "Oh, here's the textures. I'm sorry, I've got to go back to school now." And they didn't match any of our palettes or, or what we said. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a few things that happened like that. Which uh, interestingly enough, there's a community mod project of rebooting the graphics where they're they're already making making some headway in some of it. Um, the one of the, the the interesting things that we've seen with Akron is is how people learn how to deal with the mechanic, and this we 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 did a lot of testing on. Unfortunately, we didn't have the budget to pursue all of the different paths. We found that there's really about four different types of players. There's the ones who sort of rush headlong into the mechanic and uh, and and jump around very quickly and confuse themselves very easily. 
There's another type who, who just seem to get it right off the bat. There's another type who um, are very, very reluctant to use the time in a, uh, time travel or time manipulation and um, play, it, play it exactly like an RTS. And there's sort of a fourth type who um, you know, take, take a, bit while, a bit longer to get. And trying to come up with a, a single set of levels that can teach all, all of those players together was extremely difficult. And I think in hindsight, I think that's something I would like to go back and change. Um, we we initially had a few levels where we sort of let people play around more freely with that in more of an RTS a traditional RTS setting, and when we did that, they would a lot of players would never use time travel. If we put them in situations where um, where you could really feel the effects of it and keep things really fast paced, then we would lose two thirds of the players. And so we we're sort of constrained into a really bizarre box in terms of how to how to teach this sort of stuff on on, on a. Uh, uh, constrained budget. The other thing is, is that um, playing Akron, making well, Akron feeling like an RTS is almost a um, puts people in the camp of thinking it, it's like an RTS and to play it like an RTS when you kind of have to think about it differently. Instead of clicking a lot, it's more about thinking and, and what are the how can I do what I want to do in the fewest number of clicks. Um, for example, one of the things is about you, you issue a bunch of commands and then you go back in time and issue a bunch more. Well, you have to remember to undo the commands. And the reason that we, we designed it like that was we actually had it the other way originally. But it turns out if you go back in time and you resume control over units, well, now you, you can't in, um, inject commands as easily. And it turns out that you end up undoing things that you wanted to do in the future. So in the emergency situ situations, it makes the game that much more, more difficult. There's a few things like that too. Uh, we've we've slowed the game down several times because when you start playing multiplayer and you've got all these things going on at once, um, the unit speeds tend not to matter as much because you're you're literally jumping around the timeline and, and the time waves, which are moving faster than the rate of time, are really the, the effective unit speeds. So there's lots and lots of considerations like that. Uh, and a, a few of the um, a few other uh, issues we had, well. I'd say interesting balancing issues is the fact that each of your clicks in the game consumes a certain amount of chrono energy. So you have to, we have to think how many clicks does it take you to do X and how does that balance with the other species? For example, one of the things is uh, when, when you have a group that you're sending through a chrono porter, you have to select the whole group to send them through time as opposed to a teleporter, you just need to select the command leader or the, the, the hierarchy leader. And some people said, well, that kind of doesn't make sense. And we had we debated that for many, many weeks, and the reason that we had to do it like that was because if we had the uh, the leader take all of his subordinates through time, well, now you, you have a really easy way to make what we call permaclones and permanently clone your army for, for very cheaply. So there was a lot of, uh, of features like that, and I guess to Richard's point, it may have done a little bit better if we'd presented it slightly more different than, an, than a traditional RTS. I mean, I think for me, one of the, one of the problems is, is that you look at the um, the initial state of the battlefield and it's very StarCraft 2. So you've got very similar units, certainly on the Terran side, which you're probably going to start with in the multiplayer because that's how the campaign does. Uh, you've got the equivalent of Vespian gas. You've got the, uh, the equivalent of um, whatever StarCraft calls its crystals. And it kind of... it. If you've played the other games, you're going to kind of focus on that, and then it becomes kind of all about how the three sides interact. More than it feels, it's about the time travel element, at least until sort of several games in, you kind of, you're comfortable enough with what everything looks like to actually be able to, just to even think about sort of sending units back and kind of sort of playing with permaclones and um, all the other more advanced things. And the trouble is that as long as you're thinking about StarCraft, uh, you're going to be thinking about the ways that ultimately it's not going to, 
ma- yeah, match up because I mean, nothing, nothing really matches up to Blizzard's kind of production values and um, style and kind of obviously the years and years of balancing. But it, it does kind of mean that the time troll thing does get somewhat buried uh, for a, a very, very long time. See, I find the, I find the comparison to StarCraft uh, a, a little a little interesting because honestly, when I was playing the game, I didn't have I didn't have that reaction at all. Really, um, you know, you sort of start from the position of this this game is very heavily influenced by StarCraft, and I can sort of see that uh, insofar as you know the three faction design designs, but but at the same time. At the same time, it kind of seemed to me like the game was influenced by StarCraft the way almost every RTS is influenced by StarCraft. Oh, and, sure, and a, few, and a few years ago it was um, Age of Empires and so on. Right. I mean, right, 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 but right now um, StarCraft's kind of the gorilla in the room for any RTS, and certainly in le- unless it's going to do something completely different, like model itself after, uh, say, Advance Wars or um, another, another radically different style, it's going to get those comparisons drawn to it. Now... Chris, I'm I'm I'd be interested to hear you weigh in on this uh, because it, it seemed it, was StarCraft heavily on your mind while you were, while you were designing the game and figuring out how the three factions would work and what the dynamic would be between them. Uh, I it was heavily on our mind. I'd say the first year before we really got into the unit design, and then we started moving away from that. A couple of reasons is because of the teleportation and also the, the time travel. Uh, one of our community members has made an interesting comparison where he said he, he feels like um, the Terrans feel a little bit more like Command and Conquer, the Vekir feel like StarCraft but with teleportation, and the Grekum feel like nothing he's played before. Um, the the Grekum are, are by far the most different. They have the, the three uh, different types, and you put those together, and then they, they can make um, anything else. So you have these these triads, and any two can make the third kind. So they're really good at rebounding from from um, failure. They also have a very different command structure. So I think that they're they're definitely worthy um, uh, worthy influences to begin with, but they only were, are sort of skin deep. Balancing, we took a very very different approach to to than StarCraft and, and most other RTSs. Blizzard is well known for taking armies of beta testers and, and looking at the data afterward. Well, being a, a really, really tiny indie company, we didn't have all those resources. So instead, I have a background in game theory, and that's my PhD is related to things in game theory. So I said, well, how can I take modern game theory techniques, all of that mathematics, and turn it into a tool that we can use to balance Akron? And uh, we did that, and it, it, it's, worked out fl- it's worked out very, very well. We've had um, a lot of our community members who play competitively say, wow, I can't, I can't believe how well-balanced this game is for you know, the, the small budget and, and the small... Um, community that we've had so far and part of that was we treated game balancing more like a software process where if somebody found something they said this is overpowered this is imbalanced that was a bug and because we had traceability back to all the balance considerations all the design all of how they weighed out with the mathematical constraints we could find the root cause fix that root cause and all of the costs all of the the powers and related um, resources would get would uh, get updated appropriately. So we have all sorts of pretty fancy um, economic models in there to to balance all these things together. You know, when, when you saw when when you saw a review coming along saying that well, this you know this game is is so much like StarCraft. I don't know. Did did you kind of regret having made such as such a traditional RTS in so many ways when you're working with this new technology? In, I guess in some ways, yes. You have to remember that we, we started off in this venture back in, well, we, I started back in the idea in 1999, and we started really developing it around 2001, 2002. So once we set our course on that, set out all the design documents, all the story, all of the 
um, pretty much everything, we're sort of stuck on that in that route, especially when you start putting more and more resources into it. And the, the amount of effort to re to move that a bit um, makes it stick. We did try some more stylized graphics to give it a different feel. And unfortunately, given the art talent that we had, we weren't able to come up with something that was compelling and good, that, that, that worked well. So we decided to stick with what we had. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but you, started, you, you did self-publish Akron, right? Right. And it seemed to me like, because uh, I was playing it as you were approaching your launch date, and I think we must have gone through perhaps three builds uh, during my review phase. Yeah. Um, and it seemed like you guys were you guys were crunching very hard to try to get the, try to get the game ready for release. You know, I I, I kind of asked to have to ask why release it that or why release it that early because it seems like a lot of the problems that you got dinged for in these reviews, uh, you were able to somewhat mitigate with subsequent patches. Right, and so we had a number of constraints around, so 2009 is when we announced Akron at GDC, and um, we, we felt out our various business options, and around, at the end of the year, we, we set on, okay, here's our course that we're going to do, and in order to do many of the things that, that we wanted to do and, and get things moving and get things accomplished, um, we had to make some agreements with various folks, various contracts and stuff like that, and so um, on we we had offers from we had some offers from publishers we had a bunch of different things and we were examining those and we said well you know given all these these are not going to do well for us basically um, you know some of them were like I would get a salary for a year and then basically lose all ownership of all the technology things like that that were very uncomfortable for us especially given that we had interest from the serious gaming um, venues so we said okay we're going to do this on our own and in doing so we we sort of we did an interesting profit sharing model. Um, where uh, people who contributed to the game, we, we'd pay some of them um, cash and, and then also give them the offer of um, whether or not they want to take, take part in the profit-sharing agreement. So we had all those things set up, and also with that was what stuck us at our price point, too. Um, so we were unable, given at the end of two, 2009, we were unable to budge from that $29.95 price point, even though the game market, we, we, we thought back then, you know, the price point may change, but we doubt it's going to go down a little bit, but it, I feel like it kind of did, um, and especially with how Steam pushed out over the, over the course of the years, and I feel like we, we ideally would have wanted to launch at a slightly lower price. So that was one, one part of it, too. So we had all of these, um, we'd built up this, this um, part of the business around Akron and, and we're developing it. And we, we were pretty much at a point where if we didn't launch it, if we didn't release it soon, we were going to start losing our key people because we couldn't afford to keep them on board. And so that's, you know, it, really every game comes down to the decision. You can make a game until you're 70 years old and, and keep polishing everything and updating it with the latest trends and stuff like that. And at some point you just have to make a decision and say, this is, um, you know, here the game is ready. For us, it was more. Um, it was more. A couple of years ago, we said we think we should be ready by here, and this is our target. We have to make this deadline. Now, I'm I'm looking at Metacritic right now. For, looking at Metacritic right now for Acron, and right now your meta score is 54. And you know, there's issues. You know, there's various issues with Metacritic, but I mean, that's 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 not a great score, obviously. Um, and I remember as the scores were coming in, another indie developer, uh, Michael Michael Brow. Uh, developed a uh, little another a puzzle RTS called Vertex Dispenser. Did either of you play that? No, sorry, I have not played it, but I've I've heard of it. Right. Uh, he comment he commented that it, it looked to him like the the indie RTS was a tough genre to succeed in. That that it was going to be very difficult for an indie developer to uh, hack it in RTS because 
critics tend to be pretty harsh on indie projects in this in this territory. Uh, so I'd like to talk a bit about about the reception uh, you you received. You know, I mean, how how taken aback were you by these reviews? And do do you feel like do you feel like sort of squaring up with traditional RTSs was a mistake? Do you think it do you think it hurt the business? Um, I. In hindsight, yes, I would have liked to have uh, you know taken more of the lines of not exactly advanced wars, but something sort of in an orthogonal direction. I think that we would have gotten more traction and been able to have um, you know boots get, gotten more funding and done more iterative things. But at the same time, um, such a large scale project was was so long in the making, we had a lot of inertia in that regard. Um, I do agree with the Vertex Dispenser guy in that I feel like the indie RTS genre is very, very hard to get, very critical because you do have the 800-pound gorilla in the room of StarCraft II where, you know, they spent $100 million developing that, that whole package. And it's just, it's hard to compete with that. Um, and that's, that's anchored people's expectations in some, uh, um, to some degree. So I was, we were taken aback by, we were not taken aback by any individual review. We were taken aback by by the average. If you look across all the reviews that we've gotten, it's really fascinating in one regard. The size of the readership of the venue is almost perfectly correlated with the inverse of the score, with a few exceptions. So for example, RTS Guru gave us a nine out of 10. Um, what was it? Gamers Daily News gave us an eight out of 10 and gave us a 10 out of 10 on gameplay saying this is the most fun thing that he's played in a long time. Um, so our first three or four reviews were extremely positive. And then the fourth one, which was a, a more major reviewer, came out and, and was less so. So it, in that regard, I feel like Metacritic does us a disservice because Akron is, is a slightly niche product. And, and you know, if, you're, if your gaming experiences and the things that you enjoy are simply first-person shooters, Akron's, and that's it, Akron's not going to be for you. Um, so many of these smaller venues do recognize that. I absolutely agree. I think that for a game like this one, Metacritic isn't really kind of geared up for it. Uh, it's the kind of game where uh, the review is very much in the words, not in the score, and that you're going to have so many sites basically will be praising, say, the time manipulation, but then they'll be kind of coming down uh, on, say, graphics, because that's what their audience expects, and that's never going to, going to kind of wrap up well into a simple number. I think as, I think as a reviewer, you run into this problem of... So many, so many of the games you play, as a genre specialist, I should say, uh, so many of the games I play are doing very similar things that your, your palette sort of gets deadened to a lot of more traditional projects. And I think it, it does make you more... Uh, it does make you maybe an easier target for something that truly changes the rules on you, which Akron absolutely does. You know, if, if you are... If you're, if you're, if your outlet is really focused on strategy, if you, if you're an RTS specialist, something like Akron, I think, is going to be vastly more exciting to you than if you're an outlet that covers maybe you know two or three RTSs a year. I mean, yeah, in many cases, it'll be people who've um, who've played StarCraft two this year and nothing else, um, and it's a bit like the the general audience doesn't realize kind of how bad many games are because they're still kind of going around saying deus ex human revolution is the worst game ever uh because they haven't had to play some crappy eastern european shooter or whatever um just i think a lot of the time it is setting setting the bar there's also the fact that i think the smaller sites are going to be more indie friendly and that they're generally the ones who genuinely want to give a really good review to kind of the small developers yeah i think that there's definitely there's definitely a bit of that did you feel so if, if i can pry into the business a little bit chris uh, so, so how has a how has Akron performed uh, compared to your expectations? Uh, 
uh, sales. Um, so it's it's been below our expectations. Um, we sort of it, we we had a really wide range of what we expected. We didn't you know it, with such a new and different um, game. We didn't know. There, it was it was kind of funny. Um, a lot of the publishers we, we dealt with and, and distributors and we we talked with um, had no idea how to even value this thing. So for the serious gaming space, which is using you know gaming for uh, training operations, um, execution stuff like that, I had one guy who said, you know, I've been um, I've been valuing technologies in this space for 15 years and I have no idea how to value yours. Um, so. So that said, we, we did expect a wide range. It did come in a bit below, and I think part of it had to do with a, um, a, a few reviews that people were particularly counting on that they felt like, you know, this person was uh, gonna come through for us, or this person really likes the game, then, they didn't, then that person didn't end up reviewing it. it a few of those things happened. So, um, so like I said, we're, we're still doing okay. We still have a number of, um, uh, number of irons in the fire for uh, promotional things later in the year. Um, some, some fun things, I think. And our community is really, really excited about this game, too. There's a guy named ShadowFury333. Oh, that's, that's his handle, who uh, video casts a lot of the competitive Akron games, and they are really good at it. It's, it's, a, it's a neat um, niche, almost eSport community there. So I, I can see that continuing on for quite some time. We've also released um, pretty much all of our mod tools and sources, so if people want to make other games with Akron, or with Akron's resequence engine, or make... Um, significant mods they can. Um, one of the things that, that we did with the single player game was the third and fourth campaigns is where we started pulling out the, especially the fourth campaign, we started pulling out the stops given that the player had familiarity with all of the game mechanics in there. And now we start having levels like tower defense, um, different types of mechanics that you'd never seen before. And Akron's version of tower defense is quite interesting. It's very much like a puzzle RTS. But again, if you don't get the fundamentals done, we didn't make that level accessible enough to pull it back. So one of the things that we're doing is looking at how can we take those types of puzzles and those types of experiences and simplify them a bit so we can expose them to a wider audience. I, think that's, I mean, I think that's a great idea because I mean, when, I, when I was playing through, by far the best um, of the single players for me were things like the Grandfather Paradox yeah, level in the skirmish mode. And it was just drilling down to kind of this is how it works, play with it, see how cool it is, and then kind of, oh, I see how I can use this in, in an actual game. Um, and certainly for my uh, for my money, I'd have much preferred kind of sort of more kind of themed gimmicky levels as opposed to this idea that you've got to play through this long linear campaign and kind of the hope that you'll, you'll unlock that kind of cool stuff, which obviously I didn't know anything about when I started the game. Yeah, you know, I mean, the the campaign, I think, is an interesting example of the way a, a campaign can actually make a game look much less interesting than it is. Mm. Uh, be, because my reaction to it was because I start I started with the campaign. Uh, I played a few a few days worth of that before I started playing skirmishes. And for me, the campaign was it actually leached a lot of the fun and excitement out of the time travel mechanic because a lot of the missions were very very learned by rote, mm. uh, and you were struggling with you know because a lot of these maps sort of wind wind in around themselves. So it was it was playing to all the game's weaknesses, right? Uh, you know, trying to get your units to do what you told them. Uh, not much margin for error while you're trying to learn these systems. Um, and, and so it took a long time for the missions to really begin revealing what was so exciting about Akron. Whereas playing it in skirmish mode with a human for just, you know, five minutes uh, was a revelatory experience. But the single player campaign never really brought that out. Uh, and it, it, sort of, it sort of seemed to me like that campaign, in a lot of ways, was sort of putting your worst foot forward, uh, where I think you know, the game would have been served by 
delivering people to the skirmish as quickly as possible. I, I was thinking, um, again, I hate to kind of go back to StarCraft 2, but the, the way that the campaign of that one is structured is kind of very much um, every level having its own sort of style and thing and individual thing to teach, but kind of doing it almost uh, as a series of mini-games in their own right. Uh, because for me, the, the campaign genuinely lost me on the second, the second map, where you've got to just move a few guys uh, from the start of the map to the end. But even kind of sort of taking into account that you've got to learn how to do that before you can do the more complicated stuff, it was things like you've got to navigate them through these patrols, but then the patrols would only have like a margin of error of a second or so. And so kind of by the time I got to the end of that one and kind of constantly been rewinding and rewinding and rewinding, I pretty much had to just walk away from the game for for a couple of hours before I could kind of come back to it with a a clear head. And it's it's not because it's particularly difficult, it was just that is this what the whole campaign's going to be like? So I don't have enough fruit pastels for this. Yeah, that was that was definitely that was definitely my reaction. And I, I, I will say that the campaign did get better as I played more of it. Uh, but it, it did take a long time for it to become half as interesting as the um you know as as the skirmish was. Now Chris, you you did something interesting with, with sales, and that is uh, whenever whenever you buy whenever you buy Akron now, uh, you get an extra key, correct? Correct, yeah. And so we talked to the Frozen Synapse developers a bit about this because that's a that's such a that is such a multiplayer game. Uh, really, you know, if you don't have people to play it with, the game's kind of dead. Um, and so they were they were confident that it, that it really helped them out. That it made it made the uh, it made it much easier for people to buy the game. Now, when you change the deal and and let people get an extra key to give to a friend uh, with with each activation. Uh, did did you see anything similar happening with sales? Yeah, I would say that um, from now. Obviously, it's very difficult to um, exactly characterize it because you don't have a, a control case where you can compare them directly against each other. But our our, our, our experience is sort of that it didn't really make make a huge bump in sales, but it dragged it out a lot. It dragged out the level of sales a lot further. Um, so the people were continually discovering the game for longer than they would have otherwise because they, you know, it takes a couple of days. Oh, I, I need to give it to my friend Joe, and it takes a couple of days, and then oh, Joe really likes it, and then it goes on to his friends. Um, so I, we didn't, I, like I said, I believe we noticed a longer curve there. One of the um, that was a really fascinating thing. So like I said, we could not touch our price because of some of the things that we'd set up a couple of years back. So we were kind of locked into that. And we we talked with a few other folks that, that I, I can't really go into too much detail about, but we're we're like okay, so this is the price that we have to release the game at. And it wasn't until a week later that, about a week later, I think was when we came up with that that we came up with that and got all parties to agree on that so that we could move forward with it. And one of the the big fears which I had for the game while reviewing it is that it's it's such a hardcore friendly um, game. That it seemed like kind of in a month or so, anybody kind of joining a game via kind of going onto the IRC is going to just get beaten senseless. It, it sort of seems like, um, yeah, how, how are you going to kind of keep bringing new people in and kind of sort of let them kind of be newbies, let them suck at it for a while uh, without being sort of scared away by having kind of time rewritten underneath them and uh, all the other kind of more hardcore uh, side of the game? Yeah, I think that um, our community has done a pretty good job of. of um being very newcomer well uh, friendly and, and newcomer welcome, um, where they get people to ramp up. They'll say, "Here, you know, play against this guy who's who's easier. Um, you know, maybe I'll be easy on you. Let's play against an AI. Different things like that." So, um, as as the community grows, um, we'll we'll 
we have a bunch of plans to instrument more and more reputation features and things like that. And it's more of a, we'll add them when, when they're appropriate. Mm -hmm. Um, so one of the things, um, for example, StarCraft two, you know, they had such a massive marketing budget that they could say, okay, there's going to be a game every two minutes, regardless of when you play or whatever the, you know, the, the time it took to match them up. But RTS games is they tend to be 20 to 40 minutes of length. And Akron is, is pretty typical in that regard. It's not like a first person shooter where you're on a, you know, whatever, um, match you're playing, where you can join and leave wherever you want. Um, there has to be these, these synchronized timing. So given the fact that our community is not nearly as large as, as StarCraft II, for example, there's more effort um, and sometimes you need to wait a bit longer to find a player. So that's, it, it does two things. One is it, it pulls you a little bit closer to the community. I mean, granted, you don't get to play a game, as, a game quite as quickly as you'd like to all the time, but it does draw you into the community and you can find players who are more at, at your level easier. No, I was just wondering if there'd been a trend of people kind of setting themselves up as yeah, helpers and tutors and um, kind of just, just generally out, uh, doing outreach to new players. Yeah, and sometimes people, there's there have been a few times that somebody will post in their forums and say, hey, you know, my, my two friends and I just started playing this game and my one friend seems to be just killing all of us all the time I and mean, this is what he's <laughs> doing. And someone will say, oh, do you have a replay? Or they'll just say, oh, well, given that strategy, here, try this. And then they start giving that, that group of two or three players some ideas. Now they start pulling them into the community. They start practicing against themselves and getting better. And now they're ready to start playing against the slightly more competitive players. One interest, really fascinating thing that happened, we, we, um, we've run a couple of tournaments and so have uh, the community itself. One of the tournaments, there was a new guy who came in who had, was not a, a traditional RTS player, not ranked highly or things like that. And he came in and just slaughtered all the competition, including players who were traditionally very strong RTS players, like, you know, pretty high, you know, decently ranked in StarCraft ladders and things like that. And it really goes to show how this, this type of a game, this type of a mechanism is so new and different that you really have to approach it in a different mindset. Um, if you play it like a, a traditional RTS, as a, a few of our players have, um, they'll, it'll only take you so far. Hmm. One of the things which I found really funny when I was doing the review for RPS was a lot of people were saying, why don't I play this like a, tra a traditional game? And just trying to imagine that was quite funny, just the idea of them sort of building building their base sort of StarCraft style, and then just having it all just vanish in like a puff of logic halfway through. Right, so in, in regular RTSs, you want to be as lean as you can. You don't want to have resources sitting sitting around unused because you're just wasting your opportunity. But in Akron, your opponent can go back in time and harass your resource production. And now because you were so lean, all of your a huge base vanishes because you weren't able to build the factory, which wasn't able to build this, to build that other thing. So now you need to say, what is my optimum level of redundancy, of resilience to those types of disruptions in the past? So instead of saying, how can I be, how can I issue the most effective and efficient build order so that I'm clicking at exactly the right second for everything. It's more, how can I uh, minimize the maximum damage my opponent can do? And that's one of the things that really interests folks in the serious gaming space about Akron. Using it for training, using it for exercises and operations is it gets people to think that way. So one of the things that uh, Richard sort of closed out his review, review with was you know, sort of excitement over what this technology could be used for next. And so, so I have to ask, like, so, so what are you going to do with, with time travel now? Uh, because it's still something that a lot, of, a lot of gamers, if the comments I've seen online are, you know, are any indication, still don't really believe can actually work, uh, though it actually does. So, so where, do you take the, where do you take this next? 
We're taking it in a number of different directions. Our biggest thing right now is in the serious gaming space. Um, you know, you, as far as I know, and as far as everyone knows, you can't send things back in time, or at least Mac. Well, d depending on what the results of those neutrinos over in Europe recently. Um, <laughs> so far as we know, time travel is not that possible, at least practically possible. So, the time manipulation really is a way to look at editing your strategy just like you would a document. Um, for us, having developed the game and played it for so long, going to most other games, it's kind of like going from a, t a word processor back to a typewriter, where we feel our hands are, are so tied in those regards. Um, so it's we, we feel like this is something um, that has a lot of legs and a lot of game plan. One other... Um, one other indie developer who now works for a, a bigger indie developer I talk to every now and again said, you know, there's so much gameplay in this, you could probably make about five or six games using slices of our time manipulation engine. And we have, uh, so here's, here's all the different directions we're going. We're going with the serious gaming stuff first and foremost. That's really kind of our bread and butter at the moment. Um, the community has some interesting things planned for Akron that are they're just building on top of it it's really fun really fascinating um, there's some of the things they're doing with the graphics too are just phenomenal things that I didn't anticipate being able to do well um, so expect to see at least a few micro, mini games there's one um, skirmish level that's coming out I think it's almost ready by one of our, our fans that's that's pretty it's an interesting and neat way to teach you time manipulation there's a couple guys in the community that are looking at um, more top-down, like platform, like um, Skokoban type games using time manipulation. And um, we have, so we have a number of things planned in the works as well, both for um, for Acron, either in terms of expansion packs or just things we'll add on to it. Um, one of them, which I, I can't talk about publicly yet, but if we're able to pull it off, which I think we might, might be able to, it. It won't be quite as big of a mind-blowing experience as Akron was itself, but it's it's also quite disruptive and something that is um, you could really only build on top of Akron, but it's something that has not been done before at all. And uh, so we do have a lot of things like that in the works. Um, I think one of the the cool things which I, I suddenly mentioned um, when I reviewed it is that I really want to see the technology again, pure, if if only for the fact that it's not something which. Uh, can just be kind of borrowed and dropped into another game and that you really have to to focus on providing this as an experience and it would be a, a i mean a bit like home no, nobody really ripped off um homeworld's 3d space it would be a crying shame if kind of this was the only game which kind of really yeah kind of made a big deal of the, the fourth dimension right we do um as i mentioned before acron's resequence engine is is pretty flexible i mean it's not as flexible as you know something like um, Epic's Unreal Engine, which has a small army of developers making every tool under the sun, but you can make a, a quite a wide variety of types of games with it. And we're hoping that more people will will come up and, and either just buy the game and make it for free, or indie developers will start talking with us for that, or things that we'll do on our own too. Is it something that you're licensing out directly? Yes, we're um, we've been in talks with a few folks about that, and we're if if you're interested, send us an info or email <laughs> to info at hazardsoftware.com. All right. Uh, I think that about covers everything I wanted to touch on uh, with this. I was going to ask you about your work with the uh, Department of Defense, Chris, but I get the sense that would not be a fruitful line of inquiry. Um, I can talk about what our technology does in that space. That's something I, I, can, I can talk about a little bit. So as I mentioned before, it teaches players to think about um, the min-max strategies, as we call it in game theory. How can you minimize your maximum possible loss? Um, it also teaches people to think, what are the sensitive decisions that I made? What are the, what are the sensitivity of all the variables in the simulation? Traditionally, with modeling and simulation, you have a, um, some simulator that you run for a couple of hours. You have some 
some guy in a lab coat, well, not, not, not literally, but figuratively, who knows how to tweak the parameters, and he's the bottleneck. The, the movement of serious games is to push gaming throughout your organization, and one of the things that we're pushing on that is strategy-level serious gaming. So it's not just, here's how you operate a piece of equipment, or here's how you, um, you know, secure a building even. It's how do you think about the organization from a high level. How are you moving supplies around? How are you, um, you know, securing a region? How are you doing things um, when your enemy is trying to undermine you at every step or nature is trying to undermine you at every step? Natural disasters, floods, earthquakes. You know, Competing um, with StarCraft. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Natural disasters like that. Um, so so another thing with, that, with uh, time manipulation in gaming is if you send something back in time, like I said, you can't do that in the real world, but what if you send information? Well, now you can use a, a result of a simulation and feed it back in itself. And if anyone has taken a um, few math classes before, there's a Newton's method of calculating something. You take the output, you feed it back in, and you converge towards the answer. You can do that from a temporal perspective, taking our, our what if you could see the future, you'd, you'd, you'd make your changes, and then you'd see a new future with that and iterate over that. Um, it also allows people to collaboratively plan out scenarios. So if you're playing uh, in a co-op mode or you're playing with, with other allies, you can see in the bottom of the screen, oh, well, we're going to bottom out on resources. We're going to run out of fuel or um, we're going to take a lot of damage if we do this. So how can we mitigate that and, and measuring players' intent? Serious gaming at, at, at the strategy level is not so much about um, it's not so much about running these simulations, but it's about figuring out what decisions that the humans need to make and where the humans should be in the loop. Automating the things that they shouldn't that, that humans have no um, need to make, like the low-level um, tactical things, but focusing on the high-level decisions. Uh, so we, we talk about organizational design as well. I mentioned before our game balancing techniques and also our game design techniques, which are very mathematical. Now you can measure how well your game is doing at teaching you the strategies that you wanted to impart on players. And, and seeing, is the game doing a good job of that? Uh, you know, given that the, that the player already knows how to play the game to begin with, are they learning the, the detailed and nuanced strategies? So what's that difference there? Um, what types of metrics can we learn? How can we build games that, um, that teach people to interact with, with uncertain elements and other rational players? So those are the sorts of things that we do. We do some consulting and we also do some development work uh, on that in that regard. The serious gaming space is, uh, is a really fascinating field. I believe right now the last number I heard is about a one to two billion dollar a year market, and Gardner's predicting it to be about fifteen billion by twenty fifteen. So it's a really, really fast um, advancing space. Well, it, it's, it struck me while playing that one um, potentially which I haven't really seen anybody doing is for things like say social, online social games, uh, just being able to simulate what the player would be doing um, as opposed to having to log in all the time and just kind of uh, use this kind of beyond like the pure time manipulation as a gameplay mechanic. Right, and, and like I said before, it's a lot about measuring player intent. So let's say that you were to apply this game in a little bit more lower level. So you're moving some squad, or maybe you're moving an individual, and you tell them to move 10 spaces to the left, or 10 feet to the left. Well, okay, that means one thing, but what if the, the, the uh, character was on a train? Does that mean that you're going to move 10 spaces east, or now that the train has switched tracks and is now moving west, does that mean 10, 10 uh, units to the north? And it, one of the, neat, the interesting things about applying time manipulation with game design is it really forces the game designer to think, what is the player intending to do? So that if the player is not playing then, they're off in a different part of the timeline, 
what would be the, the most reasonable response that the, that the player wanted to do. But there's also keeping it predictable. If we just had the AI playing all the time and you, you went back in time, you changed something, you came back to the present and you were thinking, I don't understand what just went on. You need to have it, um, the player needs to have a mental model of what just happened. You know, go, going with what you're talking about, like how this, how this uh, software teaches, teaches people, you know, one of, the, one of the things that really caught me out with Akron is that I really didn't I really didn't think it would change how I thought about uh, my strategies, my choices. I didn't think it would change them all that dramatically. Like I sort of when I was sort of considering the game abstractly, I was thinking it would be a bit like um, you know, a game replay that I could just scrub the uh, timestamp back and then intervene at that point and then it would be it would be all very simple. What I didn't count on was the way that the cascading effects of decisions would really make it much more complicated than just going back and tweaking one thing here. And I don't know. I mean, Richard, did, did you find that? Did, did you find that it engendered maybe a deeper appreciation for consequences? I think when I was playing through it, uh, my big focus was very much on um, how can I how can I prevent this situation from emerging, which probably gives you some hints to how great at uh, RTS games I am. Um, but just watch just watching the computer just magically be able to kind of work out kind of what i meant it to do and kind of it, it was a really weird clash that the the ai couldn't get from point a to point b con, uh, convincingly but if i kind of went back 5 minutes or so in the game and kind of, sort of sent units across then i could skip forwards past the present point in the timeline and then be kind of commanding them in the future when they'd already arrived i just found that brilliant so it was just um an ama an amazingly different uh, way of playing playing these games Having the, the time manipulation also influenced a lot of our design decisions. So there's the old adage of whenever you come up with something new, you want to keep everything else as familiar as possible because you want people to go, oh, I'd make this new step to get to this new technology. Well, time manipulation is a real big game changer. Um, for one thing, uh, let's say that you, you have a, your regular group of units. You take these 10 units and assign them, okay, this is group number one. And when I click on one, I, I tell them to do something. Well. If, you, if we use that mechanic solely with the chrono energy, it allows a player to, and let's say that it costs one unit of chrono energy to send, to give a command to this group of 10 units. Well, now a player could click at 10 different units across the map, a, a certain distance away, issue one command, and then they could change a lot of the map space, a lot of the, 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 the spatial region with one unit of chrono energy. And that creates a lot of instability in the underlying game because now that your opponent said, well, you just changed everything, now I don't understand the game. So to mitigate that, that's the main reason that we started with the command hierarchies was to keep your commands local so that you can only issue one command to one unit, but your units are clustered around and try to keep in the same vicinity of that other unit, keep your commands localized. We came up with some other techniques of saying, um, you know, you can only issue these, command, these commands to these 10 units if they're within a certain box or different spatial regions. But we found that the user interface for that was just too clunky and it was too much of a mental load. And people uh, seemed to like the command hierarchies quite a bit. So that was one thing that, that really drastically affected uh, uh, the game design. Another thing was that the time manipulation allowed us to do some game mechanics that otherwise would be just bad. For example, nanite infection, which is a very advanced mm. um, technique where you can use one of your units and nanite infect an enemy and take control over them, but they don't know that you have control over that unit. So what you can do is you can take a mech, um, nanite infect one of your enemy's mechs, and have it walk across the map and build 30 turrets off in the corner somewhere. And now you've just wasted all of their resources. Yeah, that one drove me insane. 
I'm not. I'm not. I'm not actually sure I like that one. Like, so, I appreciate uh, the cleverness of it, but my I, th- I think it's, I think it's fine as long as you catch it before the um, uh, limit of changeable time goes past. Otherwise, it's really annoying. Right. So, so the, the the interesting thing with that is that our the advanced players, the competitive players, use it very effectively. Where it's in their toolkit, and all of them know how to counter it, and all of them know how to recognize it as well. So it's all about a, a laying as low as you possibly can. It's one of those things that um, if you're a new player, you're playing against a more advanced player, or you're playing against a player who gets to that before you do, it can really decimate you. But once you're used to it, it's a very interesting mechanic that really gives vibes more like um, like Spy Party or something like that that really isn't found in other games. I mean, again, I think it kind of goes, goes back to me to the, the scale of the battles kind of causing a problem for me in that trying to keep track of all of this stuff kind of across the different timelines with the potential that I've got enemy agents here or kind of have to worry about this there, for, for me, I kind of found it fairly overwhelming. And I think that a lot of that kind of goes into the fact that if it was maybe humans, with humans versus humans, it was kind of okay because I kind of instinctively kind of knew what most of the units did, um, like I kind of knew what I was up against. When I played against people who were using the aliens, it was just my mind is melting now. Um, just trying to keep track of even what they could do, uh, regardless of kind of how, yeah, how to actually kind of counter them in yeah, uh, playing Skynet kind of throughout the entire of history. Yeah, there is a lot of um, you know there is a lot of depth of the gameplay, and that's part of what um, comes by working on it for num- for a number of years. Uh, an interesting thing is that some people, like like you just said, say that, well, the game is too complicated, there's too much depth, there's too many things in, in the RTS. And then on the flip side, we have other people saying, this is a small RTS, there's not enough um, specials, there's not enough units, there's not enough all these other sorts of things. And it is a balance that we try to keep it smaller than most RTSs to keep it a little bit more manageable. Yeah, I noticed on the wiki there's kind of like a whole section of um, how, how the game is sort of different from these other ones, which I thought was quite, quite, quite a nice inclusion, but... Uh... So it's still kind of tricky to learn when you're sort of in, in the first few games yeah. and kind of getting beaten senseless. I, w- I will say that my, my one of the reasons I think I had some, some positive early experiences is that uh, my games tended to be sort of learning, learning games, right, where uh, nobody's, nobody's playing at a very high level, so the, the problems at hand are fairly manageable. It's fairly easy to keep track of, you know, what's going on across the different timelines. Uh, but there were a couple games I played where I was getting hit with, you know, basically, you know, basically someone playing at a full RTS pacing, uh, you know, mm. with all with all their micromanagement skills, and then it was just information overload because not only, I mean, it would have been bad enough in just in just one part of the timeline, but it was in four or five different places, and then it just, you know, once you lose that picture, it's just it's just shapes and colors going mm. past you. And I think it's also a bit deceptive because it kind of gives you the idea that you don't have to kind of micromanage and kind of be frantic because you can always rewind time and change things. But then at the same time, the the limit of, um, I forget the, the technical term for it, but changeable time is relatively tight. And so kind of you, you sort of got that always having to kind of nip back into the past and kind of make sure that nothing's about to screw you over. And I know that at least a couple of times I was, I was sort of playing someone just, just nip in right at the last millisecond and then I was completely dead for the rest of the game. Yeah, that's one thing that a lot of players have learned strategies to prevent that from happening. So there's there's a bunch of techniques of, um, you know, in, in StarCraft II you might build supply depots to pre- prevent to protect your base and uh, sort of as a meat shield or for padding. And the same thing is true in Acron too because you want your your units to be able to delay damage as long as they possibly can so that you can come back and and fix things. 
And so the best players will do those sorts of things. They'll also do things where they'll um, they'll enqueue a whole bunch of commands in a unit and send it back in time. So now when it arrives back in time, it's going to do a whole bunch of tasks, and that'll save them on chrono energy too. Uh, I, I remember after we did the pre-order program, we launched it, and we had the um, the Chrono Clone Challenge level, which I believe, Richard, I think you mentioned it before, where hmm. you start the game off with, or the, you start the skirmish off with two mechs, and you have uh, two, I believe, two teleport, uh, no, two Chrono Porters and one teleporter, and you, there's an enemy of thirty mechs waiting to the south of you, and your goal is to beat them. Hmm. So you're, you have to send the mechs back in time, reinforce themselves, so they're fighting alongside themselves. You know, you're, um, uh, you're John Connor, and you go back and you're fighting right next to, to the older version or the younger version of John Connor, whichever one you are. So now, um, so we released that and we thought, you know, oh, we as developers, I forget how many seconds we beat it in or whatever. But <laughs> I remember about maybe three weeks after we launched that, we saw somebody who beat it in 55 seconds, and both Mike and my jaw just hit the floor with... Uh, <laughs> with how quickly somebody could beat that level and how quickly they could. And it wasn't, the interesting thing about that was it wasn't like a click fest where somebody was mashing buttons and getting all the timings just right. It was extremely precisely timed commands that hit all of the time waves exactly right. And so he might've only been issuing one click per, gosh, I don't know, maybe one click every five or 10 seconds, but they were so strategic and so precise. That reminds me. There were a couple things that as, as I was playing it, I was wondering if these, if I wondered if time waves and chrono energy were, had you had those in mind to begin with, or were they the products of limited technical real technical limitations you realized you were encountering, or or just the products of seeing players abuse them? Time waves was by far the earliest mechanic that came out. I, I was thinking about the game. You know, how would you make a time travel game that was just you could do anything that you could you could think of, and uh, I, I said, well, if you go back in time, and let's say you set up a grandfather paradox, how are you going to resolve that? You go back in time, your mech destroys the factory that created it. Well, it, it's basically it's a paradox. How do you resolve that? And I said, well, okay, let's take it from a computational approach, from what's known as an anytime algorithm. So. Um, we, you can give us a, res, a result at any point in the computation. So you go back and, and you have these the delay of updating. And I thought about that for a while and I'm like, this solves every, it, it, not, not solves in the best way, but solves in a way every single problem you can throw at it. So you, can, you could have nested um, grandfather paradoxes, you can have ontological paradoxes, you can have all this sort of stuff. Um, that, that, that comes along with this. I was at a, um, I was invited to a philosophy conference um, maybe six months ago, I forget the exact date, where I, you know, here, here I was, the computer scientist who made Akron along with all these philosophers and a few physicists talking about the, the ramifications and possibilities of time travel. Um, really fascinating, but there, there's three main models in philosophy right now of time, well, there's two main ones in, in philosophy of time travel and sort of a third one. The, the main two are, one is that Yes, time travel is possible, but you cannot make paradoxes. There's a Novikov, um, the Novikov consistency principle, which states that the universe will somehow magically prevent you from shooting your grandfather. Somehow. I, I don't totally buy that. The other um, one is that time travel is actually impossible in any practical sense. That maybe you can send, um, just like you have entanglement in quantum mechanics, you can have in spooky action at a distance, but you can't actually communicate information. And there's a faction of philosophers that believes that that is the case, that you have no real time travel. Then there's a third minority that, that believes that time travel can happen, but it sort of updates in, in some regard. And the idea of this sort of time wave it fits it very tightly. There was 
and there had been one philosopher, I, I forget if he was from um, the University of Colorado at Boulder or some other well-known research university, that he said, yeah, oh yeah, I bought Akron two weeks ago to validate the idea in one of my papers. Mm. So that was, that, that felt very good to me. Um, See, I was, thinking, I was thinking on a more um, pop culture thing that one of the advantages of the, uh, the time wave thing is that it's basically what just about every movie or um, the majority of novels use. It's kind of the Back to the Future sort of style time ripple where you get that sort of chance to fix things. Exactly. Um, I mean, I mean, for me, for me, the time waves are actually about the easiest thing to grasp. I, I kind of looked at it and was like, oh, okay, I get exactly what this does. Um, yeah, as opposed to, say, some of the, you know, the alien stuff and kind of the sort of the teleportation and trying to work out how chronoporting uh, the equivalent of a Terminator back would actually work in a linear, in the sort of our, our own linear timeline. Um, but I, I thought I thought that was a great way of resolving it. And it was it was kind of cool also to have the uh, um, the time limiter, kind of that you know something's gone wrong and kind of to sort of see it moving towards you and kind of knowing that you've got to nip back before here to go and sort it. Right, and and, be, and right on what you just said, most people are very familiar with time travel, but they're not used to thinking about it critically. So when I watch it, it, it Working on this has really spoiled me for time travel movies and, and time travel plots because I am extremely keen at, at finding the issues of, oh, that couldn't possibly happen because there's no, um, there's no attractor in this, in this uh, chaotic system or different things like that that I just I see instantly now. And I think that, as you mentioned before, you know, how would I actually go back and, and send a Terminator back in time? What are the ramifications? How would I manage this sort of thing? It's just something that people are not used to thinking about. And it, it's, you can think about it, but... Um, and you can experiment with it, which is a lot of the fun of Akron, um, but it's something that's brand new that, that you haven't dealt with before. Going back to um, Rob's question about the chrono energy and, and was that an initial mechanism, that one came very early, but it didn't come right away. Uh, we knew that the if we didn't have chrono energy, if you could just freely click wherever you wanted in the timeline, most players would play as far back to the past as they possibly could, and then occasionally they jump out to the future. Um, anybody who's, who's played or seen Akron's videos, you'll see that most of the time is in the past and there's a little sliver of time into the future. And the reason is the future is basically free to edit and free to do what you want. But, um, but people only use that for a handful of things. They use it for scouting, for anticipating battles. Oh, my enemy's going to attack me. Um, so you can, you can preview those things coming before they actually happen. And, you and can that also one use the, it. that's one of the creepiest things in the world, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> you, you are about to be attacked from the east. It's... <laughs> Yeah, you know, uh, one thing that I used to say about Akron was it felt to me, um, it, it gave me the same tinglys of like survival horror games where oh, you, very know much so. you know something's going to happen, but there's nothing scary about it, but there's just that unsettled feeling. Well, I, I think because the sheer number of times where I would have to go back and try to prevent some sort of disastrous attack. But the thing is, it was rarely so cut and dried that I could guarantee that I would be preventing it. You know, I wasn't actually sure that I was going to... Uh, really alter the game's history. So it would be those last minutes waiting for the time wave to hit, right? You know, waiting mm. for these changes to catch up and like, and, you know, and, they're, to, they're and see what And see what your opponent's done at the same time, of course. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because you, you both know you're editing the timeline. Now, so I, I had um, an awesome one. We had exactly that situation that uh, I was kind of building my base and suddenly I sort of saw the, the red spikes of doom a couple of minutes into the future. So it was kind of sort of scramble all of my guys here. Then I thought I was being really clever by kind of going back a bit to um, yeah, to build up a larger army, move back, to, move back to the present. Then suddenly two swarms, about three times the size that I'd been expecting, kind of hit from both sides. Didn't go so well, but it, it, again, it was one of the most awesome kind of um, RTS moments I've had this year. 
The um, the kernel energy too, how we we designed that. We went through a number of iterations as to what that shape, the the mathematical shape looks like. And uh, um, gosh, I probably spent about two or three months modeling that out in terms of what is the best way to um, elicit the player to spend more of their time towards the present and sort of come up with a comfortable place. Uh, like a lot of players will sit back a few minutes or at some point where they feel like their actions per minute matches about where. Um, uh, their actions per minute matches their chrono energy consumption because you want to be using your chrono energy but you also want to just like your resources in the game you want to make sure that you have some to recuperate from any any disasters the unplayable past which is the part of the left part of the timeline that you can't go back and edit that was put there to prevent perma cloning now this is a really interesting um uh gameplay mechanic so let's say that you take a unit you send it back in time so now it you just send it back in time one minute you wait until that arrival one minute ago falls off the timeline, which means it's committed. It's uneditable. No time waves will affect it. And now you undo the departure. So now you have two units effectively for free because it never went back in time. And this is something that we said we do not want to take this out because doing so makes the timeline inconsistent. Makes the, the um, you know, we have to reach back in right. time and say, well, this unit, does, it, 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 it really futzed with our world in a bad way. So we said, instead, let's economically disincentivize it. So we have three mechanisms to do so. One is the unplayable pass, which means that you can't issue any commands in that period. You can only watch and observe. And you can also enqueue commands and send them back in, uh, in time with units to affect that part of the timeline. There's also what we call the rechronoport delay, which is our sort of hand wavy way of saying once a unit goes back in time or forward, it can't be sent back in time again for another 60 seconds or so. That prevents double jumping back in time and, and causing these sorts of uh, issues. And then the third was, was some of the costs that we had in terms of how much um, cost you have to send something back in time. So putting all those together, it's still possible and occasionally players do permaclone, but not always. There's a similar game um, uh, grief that we had to balance around too, which is let's say that you have a factory that makes a very, very expensive unit. And you, you make that unit, now it goes back in time and destroys the factory. If you time the grandfather paradox just right, you'll have lost the factory because it will be destroyed, but you'll have gained the unit for free. So if a factory makes a unit that is, let's say, eight times more expensive than the factory, now it's in your best interest to cause the grandfather paradox and get those units for an eighth of the price. So that put a limit in terms of how much cost any unit could have relative to the unit that created it. And in the game, if you look very carefully, there's only, um, I believe, one unit that can make a unit that is much more expensive than itself, the, the mech making the, the carrier, the human mech making the human carrier, but the human carrier is too big for the most of the chronoporters in the game, so you can't pull off that technique. Out of interest, um, when, when it comes to the, the lengths of the unplayable pass and kind of all the other lockouts, how many of them were designed around um, game mechanics like that, and kind of how many were more uh, technical, limita sorry, technical limitation? The length of the timeline is almost purely due to two things. One is balance and one is the cognitive load of people. We found that, that playing a 7 to 15 minute timeline is really the, um, uh, really the maximum amount of time that people can keep everything in their mind for the most part, for, for the scale of games. Uh, we did try a little bit longer timelines. The other drawback about longer timelines is that it delays the game a little bit for a, a, um, a certain amount of CPU because the time waves can only move so fast for the amount of, the amount of CPU power that you have. And um, so the smaller the time window, you can have a, more rapid updates. And I, I would say that that also was a, a third consideration on top of the balancing and on top of the, um, the, the player cognitive load. Now, I remember... Richard, the, the, in, your, in the comments on your review, there were a number of people who, without having played Akron, were <laughs> confident, absolutely confident, 
that being able to go back and edit the past was the death of strategy. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, I, I kind of shared those fears, but I, I really found that there Chrono Energy in particular jumped out at me as creating a really interesting economy of command mm-hmm. uh, that I've, I've never really, I've never really experienced before. I think, I think if the hierarchy system had worked a little better, or at least <clears throat> more intuitively, it would have been I'd much go, more I'd I, I certainly agree with the um, the intuitive side, and I think it takes quite a while to work out. Even even when you know technically why you have to use it, kind of getting your head around the idea of kind of linking up units and kind of giving them orders does kind of, sort of take a while to kind of just get into the habit of doing. Um, I, I mean, the, the strategy argument is just basically wrong. I mean, strategy primarily comes from restrictions as well as opportunities, and in this case, the the, the period of time you're working with, the amount that you can't change, really does hammer home the strategic layer. I think it's almost a shame that the one one of the troubles with um the whole game is that trying to explain it to somebody takes hours. Because it, and generally for the right reasons. You kinda of, you start sort of digging into grandfather paradoxes and kind of cloning kind of all these other cool things. And then after that they kinda of look at you and kinda of go, Yeah, but what's the game? And it's like, oh right, right. Uh, it's an RCS as well. <laughs> and um I, I think kind of the the lack of uh, a demo so you can just sort of sit sit someone down in front of it and kind of um, say this is how it works, or kind of just for them to sort of see that it, it even does work in the first place. Because I mean, even when you kind of you know how it's doing its magic tricks, it kind of feels like it shouldn't be able to do it. And trying to without having actually seen it is like explaining the impossible. Uh, the, speaking of the demo, that was one thing too. We had a demo ready for launch with Akron, and we started seeing the what people thought of the first few levels. Now, this, this is a sort of fascinating thing. We had one reviewer, uh, we had a couple of reviewers that we were talking to, professional reviewers, who said, you know, I, I really like these, these first few levels. And um, we thought, okay, this is, and we'd had some positive feedback on some of them. So we said, okay, this will, this will be our demo. And after we started getting the larger scale reaction, we said, you know, no. demos, right. <laughs> um, so let's, let's come up with a better demo, a better offering that really showcases what Akron is all about, and that's what we're in process of building right now. So there is a free publicly available demo coming, but it's that's that is our core focus right now. And I think that's great. So I, I, as I've said a couple times, I do think that everybody who likes uh, strategy games has to play this one because it's doing something so new, so clever, and just so interesting. Um, it would be a real shame if yeah people were sort of scared off by the price or the complexity or um, ultimately even the bad reviews. Um, I mean, obviously, I think. It's not going to be a game for everybody, but it is something which everyone should try. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that this this might be a game, honestly, that is more fun to talk about than it is actually to play. Uh, because I'm sitting I'm sitting here and and we're discussing it, and I'm thinking, my God, this is what a fascinating game! I'd forgotten I'd forgotten how just how good and interesting it is. Uh, but that's the experience I had writing the review: is that you know when when you're when you're out of when you're out of the moment. All the thing, all the ways the game fights you, they, they tend to fade away, and you're left with considering, uh, you know, these chains of causality, uh, which are just, mm. which are just fascinating. And uh, I would recommend um, checking out the game again. We've we have fixed a number of the issues that were there with launch. I will definitely do that because I didn't get I didn't get much of a chance to play with my friends when I was when I was reviewing the game. Uh, so I will definitely I will definitely try to get a few games together and see mm. whether it's maybe a little more accessible, uh, a little more forgiving than it was when I played it for review. The other thing to, that I always have to tell people to remember is double Z-tap, which is something that you've never had to deal with in other RTS before, which is mm-hmm. double Z-tap means forget everything I told you, here's some new orders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's if, just, if you, that, became, that became a compulsion with me. Like, every time I jumped anywhere in the timeline, I was clearing Yeah, double orders. tap, double tap, double tap. Yeah. 
But that is that is one of those things that until you realize why you have to do that, it's just you know when you just begin again like directly disobeying you, it's it's so frustrating to jump back <laughs> there and be like, wait, no, why are why are you why are you back here? I told you five minutes ago to go here. And the reason we made it a double Z tap was because it was so easy to accidentally select a unit and hit the Z key, and now you've just toasted your entire strategy. You know, just just putting all these pieces together is incredibly difficult, and I think you know describe some of the strategies you, you've described here. Um, are, are light years beyond what I'm capable with the capable of with this game. Um, and, you know, it would take it would take me a great deal more practice uh, to to ever be able to play with the play at the fringes of the timeline the way some of your high level players are. It, it, it just seems like there there's so ma- there are so many mechanics that come into play when you're able to micro it down to the last second of the unplayable past. Yeah, and there's players, a lot of them will try to sneak in as much as they possibly can. So they will they will um, get their forces right next to your base and then wait for the time wave to go by and then send them in so that you don't see the uh, the attack and try to push things further back in the past as they possibly can. Yeah, just the, 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 the hidden information along the timeline is, is really interesting. This is why Skynet just sent one robot. <laughs> it, could, <laughs> it couldn't handle it. <laughs> Sky, Skynet's, Skynet's trying to figure out like why, why the attack didn't work, and and Skynet Chris Hazard is explaining the limitations they were under. <laughs> well, that about that about does it for our discussion. Uh, I want to thank you both for a fascinating uh, discussion of a really interesting game. Uh, th- this is a this is a tough one to wrap your head around. There's not a lot of people who you know who, who can really explain the game that clearly. Uh, I want to thank you both for joining me today and uh, helping welcome. sort of clarify what Akron is. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having me, Rob. My pleasure. All right, that just about does it for our show. Before we wind down, I should mention that October's Three Moves Ahead's annual donation drive. And so, once again, I must ask you for your patronage. I won't say these donations will keep the show going because, honestly, we're opinionated enough and like each other enough that we'd probably keep doing the show even if every one of you told us to stop. But I will say that we are always mindful that our audience is well-informed and very demanding. And we spend a great deal of time trying to produce a show that meets your standards. Whatever you feel we're worth, or perhaps just whatever you feel like spending on us, we will be very grateful to have it, just as we are grateful that you continue to listen to us every week. With that out of the way, it is time to wrap up. My thanks once again to Richard and Chris for being superb guests, and I hope you both can come back before too long. Be sure to tune in next week for what I hope will be an F1 2011 show assuming I can win your indulgence and Troy's. Until then, good night.